Living Hero, Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks. Ayahuasca and Iboga are rainforest hallucinogens. They are traditional sacraments used in the tribal cultures of the Amazon and of Central West Africa, respectively. And in the past, these medicines were taken by many members of the traditional societies of the regions where they naturally grow. Now, these same compounds are being investigated for their power and efficacy in treating addiction in contemporary Western society. Join me for Trips Beyond Addiction, a 23-minute documentary featuring the voices and stories of ex-addicts, researchers, and treatment providers sharing their experiences and fascinations with these medicines. I'm Jari Chevalier. A tree, a shrub, a plant came inside of me and set me free. It basically healed me of a lifelong psychological wound. I learned how to love myself. And this was a recognition I hadn't had in all of my 35 years. And of course with self-love is what generated love for everybody around me. Before Iboga, I wasn't feeling like I was part of anything. And then once this was turned on, uh, once I loved myself, everything opened for me. 
There was something that was fundamentally changed inside of me. I took the aboga, addicted to methadone, cocaine, and heroin, feeling that my life was over. I came out of it uh, healed from emotional and uh, physical and all kinds of other childhood traumas. I was just happy to live. It's so intangible in a way. The interruption of physical dependency is the tangible aspect. Two days later, we went out and I sat to have my first breakfast and this bus full of old English tourists came in. And three days before, I would hate them because they're old, I would hate them because they're English, and I would hate them because they were tourists. And I just love them. We actually have a, a rising flood of addiction all over the world. Addiction is not just a disease that people catch or a psychological disorder that needs to be straightened out. Addiction is really a window, if you will, through which we can look at the world's problems in a different light. Approaching addiction from the perspective of psychedelic therapy gives us a pretty unique vantage point on the possibilities of change that are available to us right now. So you get this healing at the level of the individual that involves an integration of the different parts of their lives. And at the larger level, you get psychedelic medicine challenging the traditional pharmaceutical model of medicine where you take a drug every day for the rest of your life and never actually get better. I was on methadone, which was a substance that I, I didn't see people come off of. Most people stay and die on methadone. and. You know, I, I really knew that I did not want that for my existence. I didn't want to be hobbled over with my teeth falling out of my mouth and brittle bones and 16 sugars in my coffee, uh, sitting around in a group circle um, at 6 a.m. in a methadone clinic, you know, <laughs> the rest of my life. It also challenges the economic model of pharmaceutical companies where uh, you have to have a profit incentive in order to develop a treatment that works. It challenges a model of spirituality that sees human beings as fundamentally flawed and as requiring something additional to make them better and replaces it with a view of humanity and human culture as something that is already good and all we have to do is allow it to evolve and to create the spaces where it can evolve. My sister found I began on the internet and it was not widely available at all. That's probably the most defining thing that happened in my life. Getting off of opiates and alcohol, completely shifting my paradigm, who I think I am and what defines me and what my life's work is and why I'm here. That one evening of taking that one medicine. You know, when I was on methadone, I thought that it was so bad to be on methadone. and so. Uh, and when people are drinking alcohol, like from underneath the sink in the kitchen while their partner is out in the living room or what, they feel bad, you know, they feel really bad. I was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. My mom was a schizophrenic, drug addict, alcoholic. I was born with different chemistry in my head already. And then I experienced, I mean, I don't, I don't remember obviously this stuff, but I've heard that I was very ill-treated, not taken care of well, um, violent household. I know so well now that that first year of life is so crucial. I think people think, oh, they're just babies. It affected me immensely, being in a house with violence. You know, my eyes crossed. And then 
She left me, my mom abandoned me at eight months, which is the time when the bonding is really happening with moms. And so she left me at eight months and then I went to orphanage and then I got adopted, thank God. And when I was four, a man had me touch him inappropriately, and I had just started building trust and getting some connection with my adoptive parents, and, and that just blew it, you know, totally again when I was four. And I went back into a shell and regressed a lot with that experience. And then um, 13, when I was raped by three men, and... Uh, I didn't have a whole lot of more stuff done to me after that, but I went crazy and I started doing things to myself. been in therapy since I was young and it hadn't solved much when I did the Ibogaine and, and I was so exposed for such a repeated period of time to my own light. I thought I can have this. I can have this in my daily life. I can be a conduit for love. I'm here to love. And I really dropped a lot of trauma but I see an unbelievable amount of trauma in my work. I dealt with a woman recently who last year came off of decades opiate use and a big part of that was that the opiates were medicine to treat her sex trauma. One of the people who was in the quality of life study told me that during his experience with Ibogaine, he was being treated for dependence on, I think it was oxycodone, one of the prescription pain medications. And his brother came down with him too. And his brother was in denial that he was an alcoholic. And the two brothers were at that point hardly speaking with each other. The alcoholic brother decided to receive the Ibogaine treatment as well, ostensibly for psycho-spiritual reasons. But it turned out afterwards that he no longer wanted to have anything to do with alcohol. And so it basically cured his alcoholism. And the brothers were, uh, it transformed their relationship. They were actually uh, able to have a positive, loving relationship after that. I had tried for many, many, many years to stop smoking, and I'd succeeded in stopping many times, but uh, always after I stopped, the urge, the physiological urge to smoke never went away, and I, so I'd have to go through every day 
resisting the urge to smoke and resisting it. And after about six months, it would be uh, too much and I'd give up again. I knew people who would stop smoking, why can't I? This time I really, really want to do it. And by the time of this particular ceremony in the church where we drank the ayahuasca, but in another one of these deep meditative spaces, I was shown, I would say, what I'll call my real self. I could see that my real self did not smoke. This was a habit of some false superimposed self. And when I stopped smoking, it moved me back closer to my real self. So I just saw this so clearly, a thousand percent of me knew that. Work went on several hours more, and at the end of the work, I had about maybe 10 cigarettes left in the pack, and I uh, shredded them, I remember, tore them all up and threw them away. And the most remarkable thing is that from that moment forward, I never again felt the physiological impulse to smoke, which was the big difference, because I had stopped before, but this time I thought, I don't want to. It was a miracle for me. I'd never before had the experience of something just came in and lifted the physiological impulse, the yearning, the addiction, just got lifted out of me. The remarkable thing that one discovers is that the ayahuasca truly presents itself as the teacher. And what is so remarkable is that that teacher is totally individualized for each person. You know, it's not like you go to a spiritual teacher and they have their rap and that's how they do things. This teacher meets you exactly where you are. So the consciousness of the personality and the consciousness of the ayahuasca go into dialogue. And then the more one surrenders, the more they become one. Aboga walks with me, it talks to me. Um, Aboga is a parent. It's both mother and father. It's a good parent. It's not a parent that's permissive. It's not a parent that is cruel. It's a stern parent that loves you, that loves you and will make you go through the things that you have to do to become whole. In regard to the process of Ibogaine, it is a difficult process. It's not easy. It's designed into it. Designed into the plant structure is that it makes you really dizzy and really uh, toxic and, and, and nauseous. And it, it's designed to make you lie down and listen. About the difficulty, too, I would just say that the vomiting sometimes can go on for days, uh, which can lead to acute dehydration. As providers, that's what our big job is to keep people hydrated. The other thing that makes aboga difficult in the high doses is it's like taking you at your breastplate and just opening it up. And emotionally, it's the hardest thing they've ever done. And they're not talking about the physical nature of their treatment. If you're getting a really good blessing from this medicine, you are going to have to look at yourself very acutely. And a lot of people aren't ready for that. Ibogaine 
has a physiological impact of interrupting the cravings so that one is given an, a window of opportunity. It's only a window, though, because if you don't do the inner work, the cravings will come back. We see a lot of people relapse after the use of a BOGO because they look at this as a consumer product. You take this and a BOGO will do this for you. A BOGO will take you to a certain place, but you got to do the work and you got to do serious work. Most people relapse. Most people. Addiction, it's a complex phenomenon that really involves all levels of the human, the spiritual, the physiological, the psychological, the emotional, it's all there. And once people experience themselves as together and as whole, with the assistance of therapy and with the assistance of the psychedelics, or through whatever means they're able to get that assistance, the addiction goes away. I was a 17-year daily drinker. So during that trip, which was incredibly visual, uh, I saw myself playing something. I saw myself being a musician. and uh, It was rather funny looking, but uh, I didn't really remember it. I mean, of all the things to remember, that was just one of them. And then a couple months later, when I was still fascinated by what had happened to me, uh, I researched the Buiti, and I found that what I saw myself playing was this, was this instrument that I'd never heard or never seen. And so I thought, well, this is really something. There are some things that may not be quantifiable if we're looking simply from a, an objective scientific viewpoint and looking at, say, brain states or what's happening pharmacologically uh, when someone is tripping using some kind of psychedelic substance. I think that we're going to be always missing something if we don't look at what's happening with people in terms of their subjective experience. There is good research from animal studies showing that it works to quell the withdrawal symptoms and that it works to uh, reduce drug cravings. People attribute a great deal of meaning to the experiences they have. Whether these are just so stories that people are coming up with to uh, make sense of the fact that they're not using opiates anymore or that they don't have the cravings is not clear. Western science doesn't understand it. They don't know what's going on. The job of Western uh, science, you know, they're reductionists. I mean, they take something and they try to zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, and it's a very effective method. That's exactly the opposite of what you do in the spiritual technologies. You, you just you start to go out. You, you zoom out, you zoom out, you zoom out, you zoom out, and you get that huge cosmic perspective. Oh, the mother and I are one. It's not that there's me and the mother. It's that behind both of us, you could say, there is only this one pulsating, ever-present, ever-alive, eternal, now, love. <laughs> All the words fail, but I just dropped into that, and everything was this pulsating, vibrant, alive field where love was constantly giving birth to form. We are investigating a series of Ibogaine clinics around the world. 
watching patients as they come into these clinics uh, and evaluating them for addiction severity and quality of life afterwards. We're then comparing that data across the different sites and see if we have enough information to justify a future clinical trial of Ibogaine for addiction. There's so many questions that are coming up now. We're just at the nascent stages of asking what Ibogaine does. If it does something for fertility and addiction and uh, depression and Parkinson's, I mean, what else does this thing do? You can get to this place of presence and it calms you and acts like this adaptogen and calibrates your body and calibrates your brain to where you don't need it. You're not jonesing. You're not yearning, you're not hungry, you're sitting, you're still. And that's what we see in these case reports of people who successfully go through Ibogaine therapy and who have successfully used LSD to treat their alcoholism. They say, I just don't need it anymore. I'm beyond it. I've moved past it. I always like to use the metaphor of, of Christ healing the leper. That was great for the leper, it was fantastic for the family, it was great for the community, but that was not the point. The point was that love heals. And from that, you can sort of use it as a publicity tool, if you will, to be crass. You know, this is where people will listen. You know, they want to see tricks. You know, again, using a Christ metaphor, he went back home and they wanted to see the water turn to wine. They didn't want to hear the conversation about love thy neighbor and turn the other cheek and put up your sword. So a boga heals the individual, it heals your ancestor, uh, it heals the community, and then it speaks to a greater love. The very act of conducting this research in a mainstream, legitimate context with the right tools and the right approaches changes our entire perspective about the culture itself. So research into these substances requires a very complex negotiation between researchers and policymakers and regulators and law enforcement. The research doesn't just happen. It happens in the context of a collaboration between people at the highest levels of government and the researchers right on the ground. The addiction, in a way, is the least important. We're working on an ancestral wound. Uh, we can see patterns going back, you know, generations, generations. We're working on cultural wounds, healing the, uh, the wound of colonialization and post-colonialization and, um, and cultural imperialism. In the West, we are dealing with much of the same thing. Ibogaine is listed as a Schedule One substance in the U.S. Schedule One substances are defined as substances that are subject to abuse and that have no medicinal value. There's a, a group of people suffering from opiate addiction that by ingesting Ibogaine and taking it in underground clinics that they could overcome their addiction to opiates and alcohol and other drugs. And the power of the experience so intense for so many people that they spread the word about it. Um, and they've uh, begun to open up clinics in other parts of the world, uh, Mexico, New Zealand, other areas, where the therapy is available to people with the means and the resources 
to attend the clinics. If you go back far enough, you see a picture of the Earth, and there's a band around the center of the Earth, and in that band are the people with this knowledge. If we can continue to span around that, that Earth where that green band is, and it's literally the lungs of the planet. So this is about breath, and it's like all spiritual practice, it goes to breath, and it's literally about breath and about breathing and the pharmacopoeia of the forest that we are at risk of losing. And if we lose that, then we are lost. Going through the door of devastation, I dropped into the space where there was... uh, where there was only love. My name is Claire Wilkins. I struggled with serious multiple chemical dependencies for about 15 years until I found Ibogaine. I'm Tom Kingsley Brown. I'm an anthropologist doing research with the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. I'm Bruce Alexander. I'm a professor emeritus at Simon Fraser University in Canada, and I wrote The Globalization of Addiction, A Study in Poverty of the Spirit. My name is Donovan Tasinga, and I have substantial experience with ayahuasca, having first experienced it in Brazil and having led ayahuasca ceremonies for many years. I'm Susan Tasinga. I'm the author of Love Unbroken from Addiction to Redemption. My name is Pamela Tasinga, and I co-authored the book Love Unbroken from Addiction to Redemption. I spent 10 years of my life addicted to heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamines. My experiences with Ibogaine and ayahuasca helped me get free of my addictions. I've been drug-free for eight years. Uh, My name is Brad Burge. I'm Director of Communications for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. My name is Dimitri Mijanis. I work with drug addicts, people suffering from severe trauma. My name is Robert Payne. I'm a many years Ibogaine and Iboga practitioner, and I play the Buiti instrument Mugongo. Thanks to all the participants who spoke with me and shared with us so openly. Special thanks to the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and especially to mentors John Bewin and Shay Shackelford for their assistance in the creation of this piece. And thanks to audio engineer par excellence, Charles de Montebello of CDM Studios, New York. Special thanks also go to musician-composer Cosmo D, who took the music that I had in my head and delivered it back to me so beautifully on his cello and electronic synthesizer. Thank you so much, Cosmo.